Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson, and I'm joined today by Jordan Rubin. Hey, Jordan. Hi there. So last week we came into the studio and we recorded a a lovely podcast about Brett Kavanaugh's smooth sailing to confirmation and also took a look at some of the long conference. Uh, Today we're back in the studio for um, anybody who is a court watcher. Um, The reasons will be obvious. Anybody is just alive right now (laughs) in America. That's right. Uh, So we're going to update this podcast. But first, um, let's take a listen to the state of play last week uh, on Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court. You're saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still get confirmed? (laughs) I think I heard that somewhere. So this vote's going to happen. Is there any indication that there's anything that's happened since the confirmation hearings that could trip up Kavanaugh getting confirmed? Well, after the confirmation hearings, senators submitted uh, written follow-up questions to the senators as, as they've done uh, for the for the past 30 or 35 years. And so uh, these written questions were actually thousands of written questions, uh, which he responded to. And so people are still kind of digging through those. But it doesn't seem like there's going to be um, any bombshells in there. I mean, these are questions that Kavanaugh himself, you know, can sit and contemplate and answer and write down. Um, so unlikely to find anything in those written questions. Uh, But we're also seeing a couple of things trickle out. Uh, Recently, we heard from Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, that she was submitting some information to the FBI for investigation. Uh, She didn't say what that information was, saying that the person involved wanted confidentiality. Um, And so I suspect that, uh, you know, we'll see more... um, people trying to trip up the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation. I also suspect that they will not be successful. At this point, I'm not sure what it would take for uh, GOP senators to vote against him. So Kimberly, do you you stand by that? (laughs) Well, I think I do now know what it might take. Um, You know, since that time, some pretty explosive allegations uh, about um, an incident that happened Um, between Brett Kavanaugh and a woman when they were in high school have come out. And, uh, you know, since that time, the story has really been developing quite rapidly. Um, And so it's unclear at this moment uh, really what the next steps are going to be. Um, And there will probably be uh, more developments from the time we record this to, uh, you know, to when people are listening. So we're recording this on Thursday morning, September 20th. Kimberly, what are some of the potential options that we're looking at for where the next steps in these hearings could go? Well, since the woman uh, came forward and made her allegations against Brett Kavanaugh public, the Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley has said that they are going to have another hearing where they want to air out um, her complaints and also give Judge Kavanaugh a chance to, in in his words, um, you know, maintain his integrity and clear his name. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford of California and Judge Kavanaugh have both been invited to testify under oath. 
Dr. Ford will have the opportunity to offer sworn testimony. She communicated with the ranking Democrat on the committee in writing nearly seven weeks ago, but through no fault of hers, Senate Democrats chose to play politics and keep it secret throughout the entirety of Judge Kavanaugh's regular confirmation process. They sat on this information. Uh, right now, that meeting is set for Monday, but it's unclear uh, who the players are going to be. So what are, the, what are the options for who the players could be? Well, Chuck Grassley would like to see both Brett Kavanaugh um, and the accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, speak at this hearing. And Kavanaugh has accepted that invitation. Uh, but there's some wrangling between uh, her attorney and Grassley about what needs to happen before she agrees to come and talk before the committee. Uh, her lawyer saying that she wants the FBI to investigate these allegations and then submit a report so that they can all kind of be working off the same set of facts before uh, she testifies. Uh, Chuck Grassley says we don't need the FBI to do anything. This is, these claims are, you know, decades old. There's not going to be any kind of physical evidence as far as credibility. Grassley says that's something senators can determine for themselves. Well, this is the same Chuck Grassley who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas hearings, right? Well, right. This this has a lot of parallels um, to what happened in the 90s with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Um, Democrats and people who support um, or who oppose Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation point to the fact that the FBI did, in fact, uh, do investigations after Anita Hill uh, made her allegations. Uh, Chuck Grassley has pushed back on that a bit, saying, noting that the FBI was involved when Anita Hill's um, allegations were confidential, and thus you need the FBI to go in to encourage people to be uh, really forthcoming. He says that's not the state of play right now. Right now, um, these allegations are public, and so it's something that you know the Senate can investigate for itself. So if Dr. Ford doesn't testify on Monday, doesn't submit her testimony ahead of time, is that going to be her only chance to give her story to the American people in front of the Senate? Well, as of now, it sounds like Republicans want to move forward with this vote, um, even if she doesn't show up. And importantly, Chuck Grassley has given her a deadline of uh, Friday, September 21st, to submit her written testimony if she is going to be uh, testifying on Monday. But, you know, I think one thing we can say for sure about this situation is that uh, minute to minute, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, there could be some developments that really put push this vote back again. Um, right now, we've been hearing uh, Lindsey Graham said he wanted to have a vote as early as next Wednesday out of the committee, um, which would put a full Senate vote um, shortly after that, probably the following week. Um, but well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. So there is still a path to... Kavanaugh potentially even being on the court before the term starts, even despite everything that's come up recently? Well, no, I think it's pretty clear that Kavanaugh is not going to be on the bench before the term start. That was the GOP's goal to have him on on October 1st. But the way that Senate rules work, it looks like the earliest that he can be confirmed by the full Senate is October 4th. Um, so he'd miss the first week of oral arguments. But again, you know, just to stress that things are moving so rapidly here. And this is such a, it's such a loaded situation being in the context of the Me Too moment and with the midterm elections being so close. That's really hard to say um, exactly what's going to happen next. But 
I think regardless of what happens with Brett Kavanaugh, uh, the Supreme Court justices still have to go on with their everyday lives, right? And they still have a lot of work to do. Well, what kind of uh, work do they have coming up? <laughs> well, they're going to be meeting actually on Monday when this schedule um, or when this hearing is scheduled. They're going to be meeting in their long conference, um, which is kind of the official or the unofficial start to the new term. Okay, so we've been talking about the long conference without saying what it is exactly. Uh, Kimberly, can you just refresh our recollections from all being on sort of summer vacation and remind us what that is? Well, the summer vacation is exactly the reason why we have this long conference. Uh, the justices have been away um, doing various things, teaching, traveling, talking at law schools. Uh, but the petitions asking the Supreme Court to review their cases still keep coming in. And so um, a week before the Supreme Court sits, the justices return uh, to have a private conference, what's been called the long conference, where they consider all these petitions that have been piling up over the summer. Um, and it's actually a pretty interesting um, kind of strategy. Uh, most practitioners try to stay off of the long conference if they can. Uh, Adam Liptak wrote in 2015 that the long conference is where petitions go to die. Um, and that's because even though getting your Supreme Court case granted and reviewed by the justices is pretty abysmal already, it's something like 1%, it's actually about half that when uh, you look at the petitions in the long conference. And so you know, people really try to game the system and either get their petitions in before the end of the term or to at least get on the second or third um, conference of the term rather than that first one. All right. Thanks for that, for catching us up on that. <laughs> so, Jordan, uh, I know you focus on criminal law issues here at Bloomberg Law. Are, are there any uh, particular cases in the long conference that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, there are a few. Uh, I'll talk about one just to keep it simple that I wrote about recently. Uh, there's a case of a man named Rogers Lacaz, L-A-C-A-Z-E. This is a Louisiana case. It actually came up before uh, at the Supreme Court and the justices already sent the case back. And so uh, just to, there's a lot going on in the case, but it basically comes down to two main issues right now. One relates to a judge, one relates to the jury. Uh, the case stems from a, this infamous triple murder that happened in New Orleans in the mid-90s, and Rogers Lacaz was prosecuted for that murder along with someone who was actually a police officer uh, at the time. And Lacaz had maintained his innocence in the case, and he had uh, testified. One of the things that he testified to was that the officer, who was also charged in the murder, uh, had told Lacaz that she was going to get a 9 millimeter from a friend in the property room. And he testified to that, but didn't really have any information to back that up. And the reason that that's relevant here is that the judge who presided over Lacaz's trial had actually been interviewed in connection with a 9mm that was signed out of evidence that could have actually potentially been the murder weapon that hasn't been definitively, definitively established. But one of Lacaz's arguments is basically that it's ridiculous that the judge was able to sit on this case and not even mention the fact that he was interviewed about what Lacaz says is a crucial fact in the case. So Lacaz, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Lacaz didn't know during the trial that the judge had this potential involvement? Exactly. So, but the judge did know. Right. So the judge, so there was there was an investigation 
sort of separate from the actual murder investigation into the release, uh, part of the investigation related to the release of this nine millimeter. And in connection with that investigation, an internal affairs officer in Louisiana had interviewed the judge, Judge Marullo, that's the one who presided over Lacaz's trial, because the signature that signed out the, uh, a nine millimeter, which could have been the murder weapon from police evidence, appeared to contain Judge Marullo's signature. And ah. so the judge actually denied to the investigator that it was his signature, and he had claimed it might be a forgery or something like that. And so the investigator had some more questions and wanted to do a taped interview. But that was at the point where the Lacaz trial was actually coming up. But so instead of recusing himself from the Lacaz trial, the judge instead sort of recused himself from the investigation and said, I can't answer any of these questions because I still have this trial pending. And then once the trial was done and the investigator comes back and the judge says, oh, no, now I actually have these appeals pending and it's going to go on for a while. And <laughs> that's, so that's nice. I would much rather be part of uh, or presiding over a trial than be uh, the focus of an investigation. Yeah, that's, it's better to be on that side. Yeah. And so and one of the, the arguments that the state is saying on the judge recusal question is that it's not so much that the judge was the focus of the investigation. Um, the investigation sort of wound up centering on an officer from the property room who wound up getting the gun signed out. And so in terms of potential wrongdoing, the focus was really more on that person than the judge. But then Lacaz argues this isn't so much necessarily a question of whether the judge is implicated in the murder. There's no one who's really saying that. It's just the fact that given that the judge had this involvement in the case, he had to at least mention the fact mm. that he had this knowledge before the trial. Uh, and then Lacaz goes on to say that he also should have recused himself, but at the very least it had to be mentioned. And so the fact that he did not do that winds up being a due process violation. And then you said that there was another question about, about the jury. Yes. And so there's the judge question, then there's the jury question. There were some jurors who wound up sitting on the case that actually had some connections both to law enforcement and to, to crime victims. And so just to back up for a second, a general thing that'll happen during jury selection in criminal cases usually is that a judge will ask, you know, does anyone have any connections to law enforcement? Has anyone been a victim of a crime? And so the reason that those questions get asked is because if someone has some not even necessarily personal connection to law enforcement or victims of crime in the case, just the general fact of having this potential emotional involvement in the case could affect whether a juror can be fair. And so that's at least usually brought up to then at least be able uh, to let the judge ask, okay, despite that, can the jury still be fair? And then the juror will either say yes or no. And so here, uh, the problem as Lacaz sees it, is that a couple of the jurors who end up sitting on the case uh, had uh, law enforcement connections. And one of them actually was a police dispatcher who was in the room when the 911 call in the case came into the room. And she also wound up attending the uh, one of the victim's funeral. And I, I didn't mention this in the beginning. So I mentioned that one of the 
people who was prosecuted was a police officer, but also one of the victims, one of the people murdered was a police officer. And so one of the jurors who ended up sitting on the case uh, not only heard the 911 call or was in the room when it happened, but she wound up attending the victim officer's funeral of the person who was actually murdered in the case that she was sitting on. Well, this this sounds like such a small town, but this is New Orleans, you said? Yes. And so... <laughs> It did not come up, at least not to that extent. You know, obviously, one would think that if that did come up in that way, that uh, Lacaz's attorney would have sought to, you know, not have this person sit on the jury. And it, it's likely that, you know, maybe he wouldn't have even had to use one of his strikes to get them off. Maybe just sort of outright everyone, or at least the judge, might have agreed that, you know, this was not a good idea to have this person on the jury. We don't know that in retrospect, but what Lacaz does say in retrospect is that the fact that this information was not brought up uh, impedes his right to a fair trial. So that's another issue in addition to the judge issue that Lacaz is bringing to the justices' attention. So this could be an interesting case if it winds yeah. up being granted. That's just such a crazy fact pattern. You said that that's it, not even everything. That's really just a summary. There's a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. You said that the case had already been up at the Supreme Court before. Did they summarily send it back? And was there any dissent in the case? Uh, yes, they did summarily send it back. I don't recall there being any dissent. I think it was just a brief summary order based on a previous uh, judicial recusal case, and so they just sent it back in light of that case. You know, just one of those orders that you would see and maybe not even pay that much attention to it at the time on, on an order. We list. pay attention so, to everything. Yeah, I meant you. Take I would that, pay attention to it. You might not pay attention <laughs> to it. You know, we all pay attention to it. And so the case got sent back. And despite uh, despite that being the posture of the case, the Louisiana Supreme Court, again, still said, okay, yes, uh, maybe it was not an ideal situation, but nonetheless, we're still denying the claim. That's the gist of hmm. what happened. And now the case is back up again. And We'll see what happens now. And so what he's seeking is a new trial, right? Yeah, I think that that's right, because he's saying that, uh, uh, oh, and so let me also mention that this was, you know, it was a murder case. And the going back to the judge question again, uh, the judge wound up, he wound up being sentenced to death uh, for reasons that are unrelated. Not the judge, the... Right. The judge, no. The judge, is, <laughs> the judge is fine. The judge is actually retired now. Okay. Um, so he's okay. Uh, the defendant was sentenced to death. Okay. And for reasons unrelated to this appeal, he's now serving a life sentence, not a death sentence. But that's relevant because another thing that's brought up is that the judge was running for re-election at the time. And part of his platform, one of the things he cited was that, you know, I was the guy who sentenced this guy Lacaz to death, and he wound up winning re-election in a pretty close election. And so that's brought up in an amicus brief from former judges. Uh, there are actually former judges who are telling the Supreme Court, hey, you know, we're judges. We know what we're supposed to do. Uh, what this guy did, the judge in this case, is not what you're supposed to do. Ah, wow. That sounds yeah, really I interesting. I wanted to bring up that fun fact as well. And so what about you? Are you looking at any cases that are coming up? Well, yeah, even though... Um you know, this case also has the flavor of a criminal case. Um, it's one that I'm watching closely, and uh, it's Hernandez versus Mesa. Now, for court watchers, that name uh, might seem familiar, and that's because the court already heard this case on its first trip to the Supreme Court. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 15118, Hernandez versus Mesa. 
So let's back up. This involves a cross-border shooting, which has all these facts that just seem like they're straight out of a 1L uh, final law school exam. And so a U.S. Border Patrol agent is standing on the U.S.-Mexico border on the U.S. side, uh, shoots across the border, and kills a Mexican teen who's standing on the Mexico side of the border. And the question is uh, not one of criminal liability, But if his family uh, can sue the Border Patrol agent for constitutional violations. Okay. I remember this one coming up before. Right. And so uh, this comes out of the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit had said no, he couldn't sue or or his family couldn't sue. The the teen uh, passed away from his injuries. Um, but they said the the family couldn't sue. And importantly, uh, they dodged a particularly tough question about uh, whether or not the family could bring a Bivens action, which is really just a judicially created remedy to allow you to sue federal officials uh, for constitutional violations. Um, the case went up to the Supreme Court and they heard oral argument in the case and they said, yes, the Bivens question is very difficult, uh, but we want you, Fifth Circuit, to please go ahead and try and figure this out in light of a case we just decided, which really kind of says that these Bivens actions are disfavored. So they sent the case back to the Fifth Circuit and said, you know, let's deal with the tough stuff. In case number 15118, Hernandez v. Mesa. The judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is vacated, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with the per curiam opinion filed with the clerk. So, and so what happened with the tough stuff? Back in the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit once again said, you know, in light of the Supreme Court's recent case, uh, we're, we're going to say that Hernandez's family cannot bring uh, a claim here, and they once again denied the claim. Now, the case went back up to the Supreme Court. Um, they were filing briefs asking the justices uh, to grant review once again to see if the Fifth Circuit had indeed gotten it correct. And while that briefing was happening, uh, the Ninth Circuit actually created a circuit split. Oh, that's and, nice. And so in a separate case uh, involving another cross-border shooting, which is very similar to this one with you know a Border Patrol agent on the U.S. side and a Mexican teen on the Mexico side, uh, the Ninth Circuit said that that kid's family could actually sue under a Bivens claim. And so it really just sets up this head-on circuit split that I think will attract the justices' attention. Um, Also, it's a case that they previously thought was important enough to hear. So I think this one has a a good shot at really bucking those long conference odds. All right. Well, if they they grant either one of the cases that we discussed today, they could maybe wind up being uh, one of the more interesting cases of the term. So maybe they'll spice this one up. That's right. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people about uh, next term because it's coming up and looking forward to previews. And it's been really interesting, the cases that people have highlighted this this term, you know, last term. There were all these really big consequential issues. And this time, uh, there are a lot of really big consequential issues, but they're kind of hidden in these sleeper cases. Um, So that'll be something interesting to watch as well is that, you know, you're going to have to really pay attention to these Supreme Court cases because they matter, but 
they're kind of hidden in the details. Well, we can't give it all away now. We'll we'll go into the the sleeper cases maybe next episode. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Okay, well, thanks Kimberly for catching us up on what's going on with Kavanaugh. We'll be watching the orders coming out of the conference to see if we're going to make this term uh, maybe a little more interesting. And until then, you can follow Kimberly on Twitter, uh, Kimberly Robinson without an O. I'm at Jordan underscore S underscore Rubin. And thanks for listening. And today's audio was provided uh, by C-SPAN and Oye. Thanks so much. Okay. 